Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. Okay, so what's new? <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I ask you that every week and you never know, huh? <laughs> Once in a while, I have an answer for you. <laughs> okay, well, one thing that's new is you've been doing marathon recordings on Simple Gifts lately, huh? Yes. Indeed, I have. Yeah, you're building up for the rest of the year. It's been amazing how much you've accumulated, past and present. So we've completed poetry by doing well, for well, the rest of the year. Yeah, so so what's coming up for the rest of the year? There's Hiawatha. Hiawatha. We just started, I think, Evangeline. We started posting, but you have that read and in the can, and then yep. Evangeline's in the can for the future, right. for the rest, you know, sometime this year and I by think- Longfellow. Yep, by Longfellow. And I think my favorite thing that I'm mm-hmm. reading right now is Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Right. And that's um, that's coming just at the right time. It really is. Mm-hmm. So much of our readings are coming together in a way that clearly make the case that God is at work. Yeah. He's leading our discussions. Our and ministry. He's leading our content. Right. Yeah. Every time I start to have my doubts, God comes through in a way that I would never have anticipated. Exactly. And it's amazing to see. Yeah. And you're continuing the excitement of the Federalist Papers. <laughs> yeah, this is an ongoing sore spot because actually when we started Simple Gifts, I suggested that, well, you suggested that we do five different topics during the week. Right. And one of them was history. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, that'd be great. We could just do. The Federalist Papers. Right. And all su- 85 of all them. All 85 of them. <laughs> and when I suggested that to you, your countenance fell. <laughs> <laughs> and so I put it off for, what, two and a half years? Yeah, well, you did a couple of them in yeah. those two and a half years. Now that you have some behind you, some right. history behind you that's interesting, now you can go into the Federalist Papers. And now we can do the Federalist Papers because we sort of have a following <laughs> and hopefully – our hardcore following, some of whom will be interested in something as abstruse and historically in the weeds yeah. as the Federalist Papers. Yeah, but they're important. They they're are very important. important. And I would say that I enjoy reading them to a certain extent, except those written by Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> okay, so... Um, for philosophy, you've been doing the Platonic Dialogues. I think you're going to continue that, right? Yeah, I'll probably pick another one. We finished the Phaedo. We did the Crito. We did the Apology. We did the Euthyphro. Mm-hmm. So we've amassed a pretty, and the whole Republic, yeah. we amassed a pretty good collection of uh, Platonic Dialogues. And of course, given their importance in the Western tradition, we'll probably continue with that too. And in literature, you return to your childhood. Right. Yeah, what am I reading in literature now? Robinson Crusoe. Oh, yes. I'm reading Robinson Crusoe, which is a great joy to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I remember being absolutely thrilled with that book when I was uh, in high school. So, yeah, that's a lot of fun to come back it's to. It's kind of eye-opening, too, because it's not very politically correct. <laughs> it's not politically I correct. I didn't realize that until <laughs> this time around. Which actually makes me happy. Yeah. And it makes me want to read Mark Twain's Huckleberry, Huckleberry Finn, Finn and Tom Sawyer. And Tom Sawyer. <laughs> Maybe that would be a good one to do in the future. Yep. Since they're being erased. And since we're talking about what we're reading, mm-hmm. you and I are reading together two things right now. Yeah. Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. 
and Ian McGilchrist, the master and his emissary, right. on right brain, left brain psychology and physiology. So right. this is actually an updated version of the old and discredited theories about the differences yeah. in the brain. And it is astonishing right. what because we're learning from McGilchrist's book. You know, growing up, I always thought in terms of the old way they thought of the brain. So this is really interesting. Incredibly Finding interesting. out. And it explains. It makes sense, too. Yep. It makes, like, total sense. It explains so much of our culture today mm -hmm. and where we've come from. And it gives us almost a biological sense of why Hegelianism is now dominating our culture. Right. To right. the extent it is. And the Scarlet Letter has been interesting because I haven't, I mean, I haven't read that since I was in school, mm -hmm. which was a long time ago. And both of us are seeing, <laughs> yeah, for both of us. <laughs> it's it's a lot different than I remembered it. Yep. And both of us are seeing seeds there mm -hmm. of where we've come as a culture. So they were being laid. When did he write this Scarlet Letter? I forget was, when. Yeah, I forget when that yeah, was written. I'm not sure either. I know it was the 1800s, but Hold I'm not on. sure if it was early or late. Alexa, when was Scarlet Letter written? Okay, 1850. 1850. And so that 13 is... 13 years before the Civil War. Yeah, and that's when the progressive... Yeah, he seems almost sort of a, a seed mm -hmm. for the progressive movement yeah. moving forward. Yeah, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, yes. Yeah. We, we find interesting resonances because there was almost an anti-Puritan... Yeah. Establishment... Established there. Christian and, and, and almost a critique of the structures of society mm -hmm. in a way that would become more. And not that I'm against critiques of right. the structures of the society, right. but it's almost like it's, he's laying the groundwork for something like a Marxian right. view. Right, and then you get to the next decade, and the next decade, and the next right. decade, and now he look and where we mushrooms. are now. Yep. Yeah, and this would have been well within the Hegelian time frame. Mm -hmm. I can't see any other way for societies to go. Hmm. Well, McGilchrist seems to think so as well. Yeah, because... Uh, we haven't gotten to that part in the book yet. Yeah, because I think so, because of sin, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, it's interesting. So to combine what's coming up with what you've done so far on Simple Gifts, that's, you, have a, you have quite a collection and quite a resource for people to tap into. Yep. When I look at it and I think of all the work we've done on mm -hmm. it, I am proud yeah. of where we've come. And it seems as though God has been with us all the way through it, helping right. us choose things, finding the right texts. And I think we all also have a good set of texts to draw from for no compromise yeah. for some time to come. Yeah. And if you've always wanted to read some of the classics, but you just don't have time, you could listen to John read them for you while you're driving or walking or working, you know, whatever you're doing. And so John will have a link in the description to the collection on our YouTube channel. And we also have it on our podcast, but it's all scattered You'd have to listen to it in parts. But on YouTube, we have everything organized in playlists, so you can go straight through. You can save the playlist to your watch list and then, you know, watch it later. Listen to them sequentially. Right. So, John, what did you post this past Monday on The Christian Atheist? Ah, we've hmm. finally begun the series that has been delayed for so long because of the interviews we've done. Yep. On The Curse Tablet, and we're combining... Wait the a second. It's the curse tablet combined with the JEDP J -E documentary hypothesis combined with C.S. Lewis's, Lewis's essay, The Great Modern Theology oh, modern and Biblical Criticism. And you, 
you bring all three of those together in one exciting moment. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a long moment because there's going to be at least three episodes of it, maybe four. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> so this past Monday you did the introduction, yes. would you say? And mostly what it ends up being is a presentation of the documentary hypothesis, right. the Graf-Wellhausen theory, or what's called the JEDP theory. Right. So if anybody wants to catch up on that, you'll have the link in the description for that, too. Exactly. It's very interesting. And I think it was a really good Christian atheist. I, I hope so. I hope yeah. our listeners find it valuable. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this week we're going to start our discussion of T.S. Eliot's poem, The Hollow Men. Yes, one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah, we actually mentioned the Hollow Men in the last two episodes when we talked about Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi, and we talked about wanting to discuss the Hollow Men at some point in the future. And I also had an ulterior motive because the poem is a heavy one and I didn't feel like doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's why it, I said sometime in the future. <laughs> as we said on our walk today, mm -hmm. in many ways, this is the mirror image of the journey of the Magi. Right. Um, right. And we can talk about specifically why we would say that. But we also did exactly the same thing when we presented the Rudyard Kipling poems. Right. Um, if and Gods of the Copybook of Headings. Gods of the Copybook Headings first and then if. Mm -hmm. And one was positive, one was negative, And it's very much the same here. Right. Except in reverse. We yep. did the positive one first last week. Right. As a Christmas in June. Right. Okay, so there's no time like the present, so we're going to talk about the Hollow Men because it's a good time with the way the world's going today, huh? For sure. Okay, so I think we should make a disclaimer when we talk about this. What we're going to discuss here doesn't mean that it's the definitive interpretation of this poem, right? right? Um, we're trying to place it in Eliot's time as well as in our time. But in the end, this poem can be interpreted personally to anyone who reads it. And any good poem can. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and that's it, the it, point. This is a really good poem. It is an incredibly powerful poem. Mm -hmm. And it speaks with many voices. Mm -hmm. And when we read it, we read it and understand it, I think, closely to the way that Eliot himself would have. Mm -hmm. But Eliot was too smart to think that there was only one way to look well, at this. Well, right. Like last week when we talked about, the last two weeks when we talked about the journey of the Magi, uh, when when someone asked him about a white horse gallop away in the meadow, he answered, that's what it means. That's what it means. Exactly <laughs> what I said. Right. Eliot was very wise to not give away what his own meaning to his poems. Yeah. Yeah. If a poet interprets his own poems, he's limiting the future Right. He's limiting himself because as an artist, what you say, you should know, has been bequeathed to history. Right. And history will always be acted upon by the past and what comes following it. Right. Okay, so the title is The Hollow Men, as we said. And as a side note, the title was supposedly the combination of The Hollow Land by William Morris and The Broken Men poem by Rudyard Kipling. I never knew that until yeah. you researched it and found that out. Yeah. That is truly fascinating. Yeah. And, the and that provides an interesting tie between the fact that we just did two Rudyard Kipling right. poems and Lewis Kipling and Eliot himself. I always do that when I'm talking about Lewis or Eliot. <laughs> I, you I confuse you the, confuse two, of the them two in mm -hmm. my head because they are so incredibly important to me, both mm -hmm. of them. And they were contemporary of each other. Mm hmm. 
And Eliot himself Mm -hmm. was a compendium of knowledge. He is one of the most knowledgeable poets ever. I mean, he like has mastered the entire Western tradition of poetry. And so that he knows and quotes someone like Rudyard Kipling, that's like the simplest of candy for him. Right. So William Morris and Rudyard Kipling combined in the title of a poem that is Eliot to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah. So I was that's where we're gonna go next is who is Eliot? Yeah. T. S. Eliot. We really went over him in our last two weeks episodes, episode forty nine and fifty. So there'll be a link in the description to that if you want to know more. But I mean briefly Eliot was a modernist writer in the twentieth century. So I have a question, John. Modernists are known for undermining authority and breaking boundaries, right? Right. And Eliot, of course, I mean, he broke literary boundaries, yep. especially in this poem uh-huh. <laughs> and in the Journey of the Magi. But do you think he legitimately broke traditional boundaries? He seemed to have written his work within boundaries, don't you think? I think when I when I hold on, when I hear his writing, it feels as though he's questioning and commenting, but within the traditional boundaries. Yep. Eliot is a fascinating case. Mm-hmm. And I love T.S. Eliot because he actually represents exactly that. You and I both score extremely high on openness to experience and psychological right. testing. Right. And I bet Lewis... <laughs> there you go again, confusing Lewis with, and I with bet Eliot. Eliot <laughs> uh-huh. would have scored extremely high as well. Mm-hmm. So he was like us in a lot of ways. Right. He was extremely open to experience. He was incredibly smart. And I'm not saying I'm smart. But he was incredibly knowledgeable of all of the Western tradition, which gave him a foundation from Mm -hmm. which to depart. And that is the legitimate way to be a critic of one's culture, to truly have the foundation first. And so when Eliot departed, he knew that from which he was departing. And when he converted back to Christianity... Mm -hmm. He came back to something that he had already known quite well Mm -hmm. and recognizing that the departure was probably a mistake in a lot of ways. Yeah. Not fully a mistake because Eliot remained a modernist poet in the way in which he expressed himself, but the content of his expression became profoundly anchored in the Judeo-Christian perspective that now served as the worldview from which he could depart usefully and in a valuable manner right. from the tradition. Right, right. Which takes us back to who is Eliot? He wrote The Hollow Men two years before he converted. Yes. And, right. In fact, I think, mm-hmm. and I don't know, you did some, some research on this as well before we went on here today. My understanding of The Hollow Men is that it was produced from the leftover materials of his most famous poem, The Wasteland, mm-hmm. which was published, I think, in 1917. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure when forget, it was. But I do know but, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, That was what established his notoriety. Brand? Yeah, it made him famous. Mm-hmm. And he became like, with that poem, that one poem made him like the guru <laughs> of the modern tradition. Yeah, And when he finally converted to Christianity, it was like the whole culture that had gotten behind him was like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, you can't do this. You're our guru. Right. 
And so sort of like brave of sort him. of like someone very popular converting today. Yes. You would say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get back to now the Hollow Men, the actual poem. Uh, since we talked about Elliot a lot last time, the mm-hmm. last two episodes. Yep. Okay, so the world in which The Hollow Men was written was post-World War One Europe. A New York Times obituary for Elliot in 1965 said that the final four lines are probably the most quoted lines of any 20th century poet writing in English. Yes, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think Elliot said that that became associated with the atomic bomb yes. eventually that those last lines that he, I think Which he was silly. Yeah. I think he said he would have written it differently. Yeah. Did he say, I think you said that when you were researching yeah. it, Yeah, I that, that reminds I me now. though so much of mm-hmm. what we're doing with the Christian atheist here recently mm-hmm. and what CS Lewis says about the problem yeah. with biblical criticism yeah. is that they think somehow they can look at the text and read behind it yeah. when they fail to even really understand to what understand. the text was. Because with <laughs> Eliot, there's no way it could have any reference to the atomic bomb. Right. Not in not in post-World War One. No. And this poem came out in like 1925. And so there was no atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even on the horizon at that point. Right. So right. it's a ridiculous conclusion. Right. right. So, John, here's a question. Do you think the exciting thing about this poem, about the hollow men, is that you as a reader kind of gets to interpret what it means? I think that's helpful. Yeah. Because we can look at it and see like those desert times in our life mm-hmm. and those moments when we feel ourselves enacting like the imposter syndrome that I felt when I graduated yeah. from college and from graduate school. Yeah. And we can recognize that sense that Elliot is getting across here. Right. That he is attributing, I think, broadly speaking, to Western culture post World War One. Yeah. Yeah. So would you say at the very bottom of this poem, at like its foundation, it's a poem about meaninglessness and the inability to do anything about that meaninglessness. Yeah. It's, it's it, the lack yeah. of ability of human beings to confront the meaninglessness of life yeah. and triumph over it. And remember, this was before he converted. Yes. So it's very interesting. It was just two years before. Right. So this see is what the is, poem of despair. Right. And this so the, if you, I'm sorry, if you go beyond what the poem means to yourself and think about what it means to the author. Yes. It's interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, it is. Because for Eliot, This, like the wasteland, Mm -hmm. was talking about a world in which meaning had been destroyed. Right. And of course, I say that this is the ultimate outplay of the Hegelian worldview. Right. And Eliot was smart enough to know the philosophy, see where it was leading, take the path, Mm -hmm. recognize that it falls apart. Right. Right. And write the wasteland and the hollow men. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the end of that, say, if this is all there is, I choose Christ. Right. It's like me coming to that point of the moment and saying, look, if here, standing before the looking glass, Mm -hmm. I can choose a world that is empty of meaning and reality and truth and beauty, or choose the world of Jenny and life and beauty and all of the connectedness and rationality of science. And all of those things that I love about human existence, 
the choice is easy. Right, right. And that's right. the journey of the journey the, of the Magi. The journey of the Magi that we which did. Which we talked about last week. The last two weeks. The last two weeks. Right, and it's, it's the message of the Christian atheist. And in a lot of ways, right, mm-hmm. the ground that the hollow men covers is the first part of the journey of the Magi. Right. A cold coming we have right. it. It's Just the that, worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The way's deep and the weather's sharp. The very dead of winter. It's like he's talking about exactly the same thing. That depressing part. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there's hope. But then he finds the, the answer. The Magi, yeah. right? And then we came to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line. And then he comes to the Christ child. Mm-hmm. And it was, you may say, satisfactory. Right. right? And the whole talk we had on ordinary. Yes. <laughs> okay, so this poem, The Hollow Men, it was published in 1925, so it's only, what, seven years after World War One. Yep, and two years this, before his conversion. And the same year your mother was born. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's weird to think of. I hadn't yeah. thought of that till you just yes. said that. Yeah. So as we said it before, it was two years before Elliot's conversion, so that gives us an insight into what was going on in his life at the time. Right. Part of the greater interpretation would be in light of World War One. Yes. If we think of the broader interpretation, the aftermath of death, destruction. I mean, there's there was tragedy, hopelessness, meaninglessness, chaos, confusion, anger. Yep. Bitterness. And wasn't there a decline in reason and in in faith in science? Right. Well, that's and, what Lewis talked about, right? Yes. And the the Roaring Twenties mm-hmm. was this turning to pure hedonism mm-hmm. almost. A sense in which all we want is just to be indulging our basic desires for pleasure. Okay, so Elliot sees the disasters and the tragedy and the destruction of war. And then he looks over here to the other side and he sees this indulgence right, in the pleasure. Hedonism, yep, the emptiness and of it all. And so now he's in the center of all of this, you know? And so there's this uncertainty in God. Yes, you know? for sure. Okay, so the poem consists of 98 lines divided into five parts. There's no structure, just like Journey of the Magi, there's no structure or form. Right. But it does have an essence of both, of structure and form, but no official structure or form. Right. And it's so loaded with metaphors, similes, and imagery, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) So let's go to the beginning. The beginning is interesting because Elliot opens with an epigraph. Yes. So or we wait, might say two epigraphs. What, John, let's begin with what is an epigraph? So an epigraph is something we take from another piece of literature mm-hmm. that is meant to introduce what it is we're about to talk about. And Lewis does this all the time. Yep, he does. Mm-hmm. And so Eliot does it too, quite frequently. So in The Hollow Men, he says, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. A penny for the old guy. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about that. I mean, that's filled with a lot. Amazing references. Two lines. They are meant to present, I think, a dramatic contrast to highlight what's about to come in the poem. Yeah. Because the first one, Mr. Kurtz, he did. Right. right? Because this comes from Joseph Joseph Conrad's. And he's actually quoting from Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness, right? And it's a character in in there. And his name is Kurtz. Right, Kurtz. And Kurtz really is the heart of darkness. He's, he is a dark wait, figure. He's hollow, hollow to the core, right? And evil in right. a lot of ways. Right, so um, hollow men. 
But I think that actually Kurtz is being presented here in the epigraph as a man of action. He is the man who does what he's planning to do. There is a powerful sense in which Kurtz is the opposite of the hollow men of the title. Conrad's Kurtz, Mm -hmm. I think, is one of those who later in this same stanza will be remembered by those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom. That is, those who have the wisdom of having passed into the other world and can look honestly at Mm -hmm. who are following them. Yeah. Right? He will be remembered as one of those, quote, lost, violent souls. Yeah. But not as, quote, the hollow men, the stuffed men. Because they are utterly unremarkable mm-hmm. for good or for evil. Right. They achieve nothing because they are unable to bring any project to completion or fruition. And this is the hollowness mm-hmm. that, that Elliot is seeing around him. Do you think so, also he's seeing in himself? Uh, yeah, and I think he does feel it in himself. Yeah, and he's fearful of, of his hollowness. Yeah. You know, of having to face those who with direct eyes remember remember us. Yes. And it's it's like the judgment of heaven. Mm-hmm. Because we recognize that there is nothing there. And yeah. I think Eliot felt that for sure. I mean, I know I did. I, and I talked mm-hmm. about that imposter syndrome. The judgment of heaven or the judgment of those yeah, I, I mean, I guess the, the judgment of because he, reality itself yeah, exactly. that I would have said. Because I wasn't even, I was an atheist at the right, time. Right, and same way with Elliot there. Exactly. But you feel that sense of utter emptiness. You feel almost like an imposter. Mm-hmm. When I graduated with my PhD, I thought, really? Mm-hmm. This is all this studying and this is all I am? I, I really don't know all that much. I'm not particularly bright and I'm not really in a position to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And I think Elliot definitely felt that. Yeah, The world was empty and he felt himself to be empty. Empty, correct. And so you feel and you look at the world around you and you see that there is no completion or fruition to be made from this dead culture. Mm -hmm. And that's echoed in the lines, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. And to me, it almost seems like he's disgusted with himself. I think he is. Yeah, I think that's Mm -hmm. a good way of looking at it. Okay, so Kurtz is a man of action, a man who pursues what he wants. He doesn't hold back, and he acts. He Mm -hmm. moves. He lives his life powerfully, even if he's a dark figure, and he Mm -hmm. is, for sure. He is a man of action. And that contrasts with a penny for the old guy, which you researched. And what does that mean? You would be better able to explain this because you're more versed in Greek mythology, but it alludes to the river Styx because within the poem, there's a verse that says, gathered on the speech of the Tumid River, which we'll discuss later. But the Tumid River alludes to the river Styx, which in Greek mythology yeah, I'm is, not sure if it's the river Styx or if it's the river Acheron, but okay. in order to pass the river... In order, when you go to the world of the dead, yeah, from, in order the, to from pass, the living to the dead, from the, in order to pass from the realm of the living to the dead, you have to pay a the pen, ferryman. A penny. Right. It so was a the penny. penny is for the ferryman to carry you across the river 
right. to the realm of the dead. Right. So a penny for the old guy. So on Guy Fawkes Day in England, mm-hmm. which is celebrated even today, every 5th of November in England, uh, they celebrate what's called the gunpowder plot. And it was a plot by Catholics to assassinate King James I and his parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guy Fawkes was one of the members of the plot, and he was actually arrested in the cellar beneath where the House of Lords met mm-hmm. in Westminster Palace. And he was guarding the explosives that were designed to blow up the king and the parliament. Right. And thus we have in the poem the, the dry cellar mm-hmm. and not with a bang because it was a failed plot. Right. It didn't go off. Right. And in England, they celebrate this to this day, that King James was saved and the gunpowder plot failed. But one of the things I find interesting about that is Eliot is going back again to mm-hmm. that same time period, the time period of King James I. Yeah. And if you remember last week when we were talking about the sermon by Bishop Lancelot Andrews, mm-hmm. it was the same time period. Right. The time period of King James, uh, who became the King James of the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. And so we have that sort of slippage of time again, that mm-hmm. um, that transposition between ourselves and now and, and then in the time of Jesus, right, mm-hmm. with the journey of the Magi. Right. And so it's interesting that Eliot is returning again to that same time period here. Right. So on Guy Fawkes Day, the children go around trying to collect money from others to pay for the fireworks. Okay, okay. It's a penny for the old guy. Mm -hmm. So they're asking for money for Guy Fawkes, who was, of course, executed for his treason and who was not able to do anything of substance. Mm -hmm. He was a hollow man. Right. He couldn't accomplish anything. So Mr. as opposed to Mr. Kurtz, who not a good guy, mm-hmm. but nevertheless knew what he wanted and was able to go after it. Mm-hmm. But sort um, of like later on, headpiece filled with straw. Yes. It's emptiness. And, and of course, that penny is what gets you across to the realm of the dead. Yeah. And across every human being has to pay that penny. Right. Right. Because all of us are going to die. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So that's the, that's the epigraph. We spent all that time to talk about two, (laughs) (laughs) two lines. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.